to be able to put our touch, our input, our thinking into having Bromley be successful has always been just a goal. And the ski product, our, our efforts are the same on a Tuesday in January as they are on a Saturday of the holiday week at Christmas. We sell snow and there was a certain kind of snow that I like to sell. And everything goes into that every single day in preparation. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Let's take a trip today to the Sun Mountain in Vermont's Golden Triangle. First, pick me up, Storm Nation. If you like this podcast, you are really going to like the Storm Skiing newsletter. Subscribe at stormskiing.com and you will get at least 100 articles exploring the world of lift-served skiing every single year, all year long. And I do mean at least. As of today, November 7th, we are already at 120 articles for 2022. And I am nowhere near done. The podcast is great. It's a lot of fun. But seriously, it's like 20% of the storm. For the full experience, you need to get in on the newsletter. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. The storm is not just me throwing out opinions and bad takes. I am doing actual journalism here. And if you're like me, you cannot get enough skiing. And you can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. All right, guess what's coming up? Snowbound Expo. After two years dormant, the former Boston Ski Show has been purchased by Raccoon Events and renamed Snowbound Expo. The show will offer a huge speaker lineup that includes Cody Miller, Conrad Anker, Dan Egan, Basu Sujitra, Danny Reyes-Costa, Lindsay Fixmer, and more. You will also find sales on the latest gear, apparel, and resort passes. And you can try a dry ski slope and kick back with friends at the Opera Ski Mountain Bar. The show is November 18th to 20th at Boston Hines Convention Center. Tickets are normally $15 per day, but Snowbound Expo is offering Storm listeners free tickets for the entire weekend. To claim your tickets, visit snowboundexpo.com and use code STORM at checkout. I will be there doing a live podcast with Peak General Manager Steve Wright, and I hope to see you there in person. All right, you know what I'm going to hit you with next, Mountain Gazette. But no matter how hard I hammer you with this, it's not going to whack you on the head as hard as Mountain Gazette will when this work of art drops on your doorstep. Issue 198 worked its way to me last week, and holy bleeping crap. First, the cover. Seth Morrison, crushing pow, I don't know where, I guess it doesn't matter, captured by photographer Scott Markowitz. That shot tags an enormous spread on one of the greatest skiers of all time, and then, did you know that there are 22 ski areas in Greece? Greece. There are some amazing pics in the latest Mountain Gazette to prove it. Then, writer and snowboarder Dave Zook gives us a deep meditation on what it means to compete in and ultimately retire from the competitive freeride circuit. And the photo profile of Trevor Kinnison, who is living an inspirational life in a sit ski after a spinal cord injury 
is just absolutely unforgettable. This thing takes some left turns too. Mountain Gazette explores the nudist lifestyle, Saudi Arabia, and the tragic end to the life of cyclist Mariah Wilson. But I can only say so much. My man Mike Rogie, who had the vision to bring Mountain Gazette back from the dead two years ago, laid this out pretty bluntly in the latest issue when he said, quote, a firm belief developed for me recently. Folks need to see Mountain Gazette in real life. Then, and only then, do they get it. Look, that's real. This thing is incredible. It is the best outdoor print mag going, and you can get in on it by subscribing at mountaingazette.com. Mountain Gazette, when in doubt, go higher. Episode 103, Bill Carnes, President and General Manager of Bromley Mountain, Vermont. The Golden Triangle, that little snow pocket in southern Vermont. Stratton, owned by Altera Mountain Company, is one corner. Magic, the ultimate indie, is the other. And then there's Bromley, the Sun Mountain, as the third peak on the triangle. Why is it called Sun Mountain? Well, because the majority of the runs face south, gifting you with some brilliant and much-needed warmth during the midst of those long, cold Vermont winters. But you could also call it Mount PBR, because the ski area was founded in 1936, by Fred Pabst of the Pabst Brewing Company. These days, Bromley is a bit of a throwback. You will not find the mountain on any mega pass. Bromley does rock a high-speed summit lift, but the rest of the fleet is fixed-grip classic lifts. The mountain is sticking with its expensive season pass, affordable lift ticket model, with day tickets well below triple digits, and a season pass that tops four digits at full price. That's because Bromley isn't chasing trends. It's not about that. The mountain's focus is on its incredibly loyal and, frankly, growing base of season pass holders, many of whom bunk down at the mountain's base each winter. Keeping a group like this happy for decades is not easy, but it helps to have a leader who's also been working with them for decades. And Bill Carnes, who showed up to paint a chairlift 41 years ago and never left, is that leader. Let's go. My guest today is the president and general manager of Bromley Mountain, Vermont. At 1,950 feet, Bromley has the highest base elevation of any ski area in Vermont. The ski area features nine lifts serving 300 acres of terrain on a 1,334 foot vertical drop. Bromley is nicknamed Sun Mountain due to its rare south-facing exposure, and it is home to both Vermont's Long Trail and the Appalachian Trail. Opened in 1936, Bromley is the third oldest active ski area in Vermont, behind only Stowe and Pico. He has been at the ski area for 41 years, working nearly every job on the mountain. Bill Carnes is my guest. Bill, welcome to the storm. So pumped to have you. How are you doing today? I am doing great, Stuart, and thank you for having me. Let's just start with this 41-year number. That is just so impressive. An amazing run at a classic ski area. Take us back here, Bill. What was your first job at Bromley, and what drew you to the ski resort? Uh, I get asked that question more and more. It's, 
it, it's a case of when I went to college, I really thought I wanted to be a teacher coach and went down that track, got out of school and wanted to work with my hands. Um, wanted to take a break from the academic road that I had been on. And quite frankly, I had a friend um, I worked with in Burlington, Vermont, with some carpenters, and we built these beautiful houses on Lake Champlain. And I got laid off in the fall. And I had a friend down here who had a painted chairlift, and it was almost November. And I'm like, it's November. And he goes, I know. And I'm like, well, that's very timely. I, I just got laid off. I came down here and we quickly painted a short chairlift. The GM at the time came over and asked me what I was doing for the winter. And I said, I got laid off from my carpenter's job and I was offered a job and I took it and it's just rolled on from there. That was my entry into the ski business. Were you a skier, Bill? Did you grow up in a ski family? You know, I used to ski with my mother when I was very young and we moved to Manchester and Snow Valley was open at the time. And oh, nice. I had the distinct memory of skiing Snow Valley with my mother. Neither one of us knew what we were doing. Uh, we had moved up from the Boston area and we had a blast. We laughed and I took to skiing. I loved it. I was in, in Boston. Everybody skates in, mm -hmm. in Vermont. At that time, nobody skated and everybody skied. So, and the other thing that is terrific in the local area, and Bromley's had a huge role with this, of course, is JISP. And that's a junior instructional ski program. And I got involved with JISP as a kid. You get out of school early and you come up here and they're volunteer instructors. And I learned to snow plow from a guy that turned out to be my biology teacher in high school. So, that's, <laughs> this is going way back in time story. No, it sounds like you have strong ski routes in the area, which is really interesting that you ended up running a mountain right down the road from Snow Valley. Just curious here, Bill, on your thoughts on Snow Valley. That ski area went out of business several decades ago, recently came back on the market, not necessarily marketed as a lift serve skiing area, but sort of land that could be developed. It's in that nice little snow pocket there that you share with Stratton. What are your what are your thoughts on Snow Valley? Do you get nostalgic about the ski area and, and miss it now that it's gone? Do you do you like it as this sort of backcountry zone that it's become unofficially for for the locals? What, what, how do you feel about Snow Valley? Just having to drive past that, I'd imagine all the time and all those good memories you have there with your mother from when you were younger. Well, you know, I, I hate to see any ski area, uh, regardless of size, die, if you will. We look down on Snow Valley from Bromley, uh, you know, from various vantage points when you're on the trail and it's like, you know, it's being maintained. Uh, there is a, a, I think, a guy down there that keeps a couple of the trails from growing completely in. But it's sad to see the trees and the brush growing up between the cables on the lift that's down there that's still standing. So I know that the backcountry skier down there uh, skis there quite a bit and they have a great time. My daughter's one of them. She goes over there and skis. And it's something I haven't had a chance to do, but it, it's thought of fun, very fondly locally. It's future. Uh, it is being marketed. It's a beautiful piece of property. It's in the Green Mountains. It holds its snow very well. It's in a little pocket. So I was very sad, quite frankly, when the base lodge burned down. That was a kind of a funky base lodge with a beautiful fireplace. And, you know, if you look at the old photos of Snow Valley, you can't help but to smile. It was skiing in an era that was fabulous and simple and fun. So it's nice to have in the neighborhood. And, and it sounds like 
you still have a good connection to it. So you're right down the road. You get this first job painting chairlifts 40 some years ago. Take us through the progression from there, Bill. You've stuck around. What does that journey look like? Well, it looks like, and you can imagine, you end up, and I think this happens to a lot of people, you end up doing almost every single job that has to be done. In my path, I maneuvered through the operations, whether it was chairs, lift mechanics, snowmaking. Uh, it quickly rolled into managing people. It became a situation where we had to hire and train people. My background, I kind of was asked to roll into some of those kind of things. So I have done probably every single job that you can do in operations. And that journey took me through grooming also. I think the key is lift maintenance, what you know about lifts and keeping the lifts going and keeping the lifts safe. Very involved with lift mechanics and lift maintenance as sort of a core background out of all the various things that I've done. Being a skier, I always knew what I wanted for snow. It was something that you know, as you worked your way through, Bromley in the 80s had kind of an archaic snowmaking system. It was difficult to operate. It was one of the major renovations we did here in the 90s. As we improved our operations, we became more savvy as we purchased lifts or we overhauled the snowmaking system. Being in on the ground roots of all of that just led to this very background and, and where I am today. So as you moved into management, Bill, you, you said earlier you like to work with your hands, and it sounds like you really were able to do that and get deep in the snowmaking and the lifts and opening up the hood and really working on these things. When did you get into management, and was it hard for you to leave that hands-on piece behind, or have you found a way to keep your hands in it and still be able to do some of the snowmaking, grooming, lift maintenance kind of work that satisfies this, this piece of you? Yeah, I, I became the mountain manager in the mid 80s. With that, one of the things that was new to me that I had to jump in at the grassroots level was the whole process of budgeting, researching, pricing, thinking 12 months out, as opposed to thinking about what the immediate problem is. I found that challenge to be fascinating, where I was involved with directing how the mountain would look a year from now, or what projects we needed to accomplish. And could we pull that off with the resources that we had? What happened with that first mountain manager's job, it became less about the day-to-day -day maintenance and more about just thinking in a broader brush, if you will. So when did you have the opportunity to become the general manager? So after being a mountain manager, I, uh, the way the structure here was I became director of resort operations. And within that title, we folded in snow sports, <clears throat> ski patrol, in addition to uh, the nine to 10 operating budgets that fall within uh, the director of resort operations. And so in essence, we didn't call it a general manager. And I did that job basically in the late 90s. And that job I followed through with until about, two, I don't know, 2011 right there. That job was a lot of fun and also opened my journey up to workers' comp, insurance, liability, safety, the wide variety. One thing that I really enjoy doing is problem solving. And if you like problem solving, there's nothing like the ski business. Um, the ski business has constant headwinds. You know, we roll through these headwinds and it's it's how versatile are we, how flexible, how resilient. So my leadership and my, my philosophy there was to uh, incorporate a wide 
array of my fellow workers. And here's the situation, guys. How do we go about this? And that time period, it was, there was just no lack of challenges and growing revenue, controlling costs. Controlling costs is something that we had to have our A game on all the time because, you know, sometimes the revenue factor is totally tied into the weather. And it, it became uh, pretty exciting sometimes when it's raining on Christmas Day. And, and <laughs> you know, how do we get through the balance of the Vermont's winter weather? And at that point, there was a shift here in the Fairbank group. Tyler Fairbank became involved. And I interviewed with Tyler for the present position that I have in 2012. And it was at that time that I became the GM. And it has been a wonderful experience working with the Fairbank Group. It's already been 10 years. Um, one thing about being in this business for 40 years is how fast it's gone. It, 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 it shocks me. When, when people like you say you've been in the business for 41 years, it's like, that's amazing to me because I don't feel like that. <laughs> so, so here we are in 2022, believe it or not, you show up 41 years ago to paint a chairlift and here we are and you're running the place. What's kept you there, Bill? I, I asked the same question of Chris Blomback, the general manager over at Pat's Peak recently, and he's been there since the late 1980s. And, and I, I'll, I'll put the same question to you that I did to him, which was basically, you have all this experience. You, you know how to run a ski resort. That sort of skill set is in demand. I imagine you've had other opportunities. What's kept you at Bromley? What is special about this place that has, has made you compelled to spend your life there, your career there? Well, I think there's a lot of aspects to that. I, I always wanted this mountain to succeed, to be able to put our touch, our input, our thinking into having Bromley be successful has always been just a goal. And having grown up here uh, in, in the Manchester area, having skied here, knowing the players we have an extremely loyal following, you know, putting a good product out. The ski product, our, our efforts are the same on a Tuesday in January are, as they are on a Saturday of the holiday week at Christmas. We sell snow and there was a certain kind of snow that I like to sell. And everything goes into that every single day in preparation. And through this, you know, you have a terrific owner in Joe O'Donnell who has the ability to help us weather, um, say, a stormy winter that doesn't work out the way we hope for. And I feel like I've had the resources and the support and a, and a wonderful group of people that I've worked with that I've been happy here. And it's, it's yes, have I had opportunities to go to other places? Absolutely. But it's just not the way the cookie crumbled. It, it was something that in me wanted to see this mound succeed to the best of my abilities. And that's what's kind of kept me here. So we'll talk a little bit more about O'Donnell in a minute and, and how he's given you those resources to succeed. But let's go back in time here to when you started at Bromley 41 years ago. What did the ski area look like when you arrived and how has it evolved since? Well, we have, we have done a few things here. We had an old riblet chairlift that was the first registered lift. It was from 1959 or 1960. Uh, it was the first registered lift in the state of Vermont. Its designation was CL number one. That lift we took down in the late 90s and we put a detachable up. Um, we had another riblet on the east side in the late 80s that we took down. One of the things that I felt Bromley has a lot of low intermediate into intermediate skiing. Most people are intermediate skiers, so that curve worked okay. 
Our higher end skiing is over on the east side. It was served by an old rivulet. There wasn't a lot of emphasis. So when I became mountain manager, I wanted to refocus on the east side. I wanted to improve the trails. We cut two trails called Paps Panic and Havoc. Bromley doesn't have any of the est words, as I call it, Stuart. We're not the steepest, longest, whitest. What we have is rolling terrain, nice pitches. You have to turn or you can get in trouble. Um, I like bump skiing. So I wanted the east side to develop a personality where people could come here and the south-facing front side, you know, long blue runs, nice cut trails, the east side more of a challenging. So that was something that happened in the late 80s, early 90s, where I just wanted to change the philosophy of the entire east side. And that included taking out that old double chair riblet and putting in a quad. And, you know, I always wanted to build the chairlift. And when that job was done, I had, I got that out of my system. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, (laughs) I remember being um, up there putting a wire rope on a, in a freezing rainstorm just before Thanksgiving (laughs) saying, okay, I'm good now with (laughs) chairlift. Um, So in the nineties, we, we refocused and dramatically changed our snowmaking. We hired resort technologies out of Killington. I have to give kudos to Yaroslav Stanchek. I I learned a lot about snowmaking with Slopko. And we started with pipe sizes. We had undersized pipe. The key to our system is we studied the cold weather windows that we had prior to Christmas. How many hours did that produce? And we developed a system with Slopko that would take advantage of the short weather windows prior to Christmas. So you could have like 60 or 70% of the mountain open. And that revolves around water pressure. So we have a mid mountain booster house. So a lot of pipe work. We have 12 pumps at Bromley that are involved with snowmaking, a complete renovation. As we all know, snowmaking is pretty much everything was a significant improvement to our operations in the nineties. And then in the 2000s, the detachable was a big deal. That was 1999-ish, uh, 1997. And then we got into growth with snow sports. We invested in ski school. We have a covered carpet lift, a log cabin, a kids rule building. Kids rule is the name of our um, program that teaches kids how to, you know, we really cater to families. So we put a fair amount of effort into that type of investment. The other investment that we stay on top of is summer. Summer's always been a big deal at Bromley. Stig Alveson put in the first alpine slide in 1976. Prior to that, most ski areas were very sleepy places with maybe a scenic chairlift ride. The alpine slide, seeing pictures from that era with a line to get on the lift, snake down between the buildings almost to the parking lot. It was tremendous. So summer has always been important to Bromley. And we put in an aerial adventure park here and a water slide, and of all the things that summer does, it does help us keep key employees employed year-round. So all of these types of improvements to Bromley have happened over these last 40 years, and I, I think the crucial, there's a lot to be proud of. Now we're confronted with infrastructure. Infrastructure, I think, is something, given our history and where we date from, it, it's not unusual to be dealing with infrastructure issues, and that's sort of front and center as we look forward. Gosh, there's so much good stuff in there, Bill, and there's so many directions I could go with that. I do want to go back just a little farther in time here, back to the 1930s, because Bromley has such an interesting founder 
and such an interesting origin story. Lay this out for us. Who founded Bromley Mountain? Well, Fred Pabst, he really was a visionary of the Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer Company. And he he actually was one of the first guys that had lifts in various parts of the country, including Quebec. He had his J-bars scattered throughout um, the country, Wisconsin. You know, he was from the Wisconsin area. Unfortunately for me, I never personally met the man. I skied here in the 60s when I was a kid, and he had the J-bar pass, and he had the regular pass that you could ride the chairlifts. And of course, as a kid, the big goal there was to sneak on the chairlift with your J-bar pass. (laughs) So... There's so many Fred stories, I wouldn't really know where to begin other than to say my understanding was the guys loved working for him. He had really good vision with how to market Bromley. His photographs, we have historical photographs here from the 40s, more of the 50s, the black and white. He documented his movies. He really knew how to get Bromley out there. And then in the 60s, he plunked down a million dollars which is a huge sum of money in 1965 to cover this mountain with snowmaking. You know, they put down Victaulic pipe, uh, aluminum pipe with Victaulic connections. And that was the pipe that in the 80s we had to just, that's why we had to renovate the snowmaking system in the 90s. It served Bromley well from the 60s to the 90s, but the scene had changed so quickly. From my understanding, very loyal following, a lot of fans. Um, we're always looking for Fred Papp's proverbial pot of gold that he buried here somewhere. We're pretty convinced of it. <laughs> so, um, but as a pioneer in the J bars and his vision of um, cutting trails, his vision of slope maintenance, manicuring the slopes, we're lucky enough that we can mow most of this mountain twice. And it really is a testament to the work Fred Pabst did in the early days. The old pictures of him trailing and blasting and carving some of these great trails out of the side of the mountain. It was a big deal for him because he wanted to be able to open, as the saying goes, on four inches of natural snow. So Mm, he put a lot into it. But I wish, I certainly, Stuart, I certainly wish I had met, met the man. His family, I have met his family. And I know his son relatively well. He lives locally. Obviously, none of the Paps, the rest of the family, were ever in the ski business. And they are scattered across the country. I think some of them live out in Washington State. So a great family, a great history there. You know, Stig Alberson, actually, he stayed here for a year before he actually decided to buy it. I think Stig wanted to see Bromley in operation. This is the very late 60s now. And... Obviously, Stig bought it um, early 70s, and Stig modernized it. In addition to removing the J-bars, he put in the hall. We have three hall lifts, and he put the Alpine slide in, in which was, you know, as I mentioned, revolutionary at the time. And then Stig managed to leave Bromley and become president of Stratton when Stratton and Bromley were together. And that relationship, Bromley modernized its maintenance shop. And we also have uh, a $20 million reservoir, pond reservoir that was built under our days with Stratton in the early 80s. So it it really kind of all ties together um, with these constant improvements. But the original mountain that Fred Papps cut is still basically what we ski on today with a few additional trails, as I mentioned earlier, on the east side and uh, some tree skiing. Just an incredible legacy. And since the early 1990s, or actually, I guess in 1990, Joseph O'Donnell purchased the ski area, 
Talk about O'Donnell as an owner, his tenure, and and what kind of an owner he is and, and what he's like to work for. Yeah, actually, Mr. O'Donnell came in in the mid-80s, and one of the first projects we did was the removal of that real bit chairlift on the east side, and the blue ribbon quad was put in. So Joe has uh, invested in Bromley across the board through these many years since the mid-80s, in addition to that lift and the detachable. You, you know, it's funny, the owner came up when we are very excited to cut the ribbon on the opening ride of our detachable quad. And Joe, Mr. O'Donnell, and a couple of folks were on the very first chair, and the chair went 10 feet out of the terminal and the lift stopped. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and this is, and I looked, obviously we had load tested and everything was good to go, but I still had one of the Austrian gentlemen here that helped us with the whole operation. And I give Joe credit because he didn't even turn around to look at me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm like, but I was not looking either. I wanted, uh, I was looking at my Austrian friend to get this lift moving. It was a very interesting time. And of course that lift has meant a great deal to us. In addition to that, he has been here as for that snowmaking overhaul. He's been here and approved the whole investment in, as I mentioned earlier, the kids rule effort, building renovations, uh, the summer investment. He allows us to survive uneven winters which is huge. I don't have to go to the bank. I have to go to Joe and uh, we talk about it. You know, we have a certain amount of autonomy here where if we make money, we can reinvest it in the mountain. You know, these type of projects aren't easy to do. You know, what's the return? Uh, there's a lot of analysis that goes into this, but I really appreciate, I, I think Bromley has been fortunate to have, I know Bromley has been fortunate to have Joe O'Donnell um, as the owner of these uh, since the mid eighties, it's allowed this mountain to withstand some challenging time periods. So one of the interesting aspects of O'Donnell's tenure has been that you were, you, you mentioned the relationship with Stratton. Bromley was also briefly joined with magic mountain. I'm not sure how involved you were with this bill. This was late eighties, early nineties. Just talk about that short period of history of Bromley and Magic being tied together and why that ultimately came unraveled? Well, I, I think the uh, gentleman that owned Magic at that time had a piece of land that was on the side of Stratton that Stratton wanted in a way, I think they wanted to expand their uh, wastewater treatment plant or system or spray field. I, I'm, I'm not sure which one of those stores. But anyways, a, a trade was hatched. Uh, I don't have the fine details, but part of that trade involved Magic obtaining Bromley, and the gentleman's name was Simon Oren, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And Stratton got the piece of land they needed to expand their system, as Stratton was, you know, rapidly building out their uh, real estate at the time. So we had a few years with Magic, a great place. And when we were with Magic, the crossover trail, the Timber Ridge, was put in. Snowmaking was put on that. One of Magic's really challenges is water. Water is an issue. I, I think Jeff over there is doing, a, uh, Jeff Hathaway is doing everything he can to improve that situation. But we found the lack of water there at that time challenging. And the lack of potential real estate development, you know, Vermont has very restrictive environmental rules and the permitting process is challenging and the ability to find developable land over there, you know, in the eighties, real estate was a, well, not that it isn't today, but during the time period where in the eighties, it was like a lot of condo building at various ski resorts and 
you know, the line of thinking was what was the opportunity at magic? We determined it wasn't a lot. So I, I was more a uh, mountain manager at that time and not privy to what the upper management was thinking, but there was just general sense was it was going to take a lot of money to get that mountain at that time where we thought it needed to be. So what's your, as you've watched this over the decades and, and Magic Mountain made a recovery in the late 1990s and this summer, the resort is building a, a new snowmaking pond, which should really help them out. What's been your reaction to watch Magic come back online? And what is Bromley's relationship like with Magic today? I think it's been terrific to watch Magic come back online. As I mentioned earlier, I, I root for everybody in this particular business. I would like to think that they're successful. I, I would like to think that this snowmaking improvement for them will mean a lot. I'm sure it will. I root very much for them to be successful with that black chair. That's been quite an experience for them. And, you know, you can't help but to root for those guys to to pull this off. You know, in its heyday, Magic, Bromley, and Stratton, we had what was called the Golden Triangle. And it was a lot of fun. Each mountain has its own personality. And if somebody came to the Manchester and the mountains region, you could ski at a variety of hills here that really were very different in their personalities. And you could go back to, you know, Southern New England or New York and really had a terrific time. So I think there was a void when magic wasn't up and running and it's good. It's got unique terrain. I like to think that today I can tell you, for instance, our low test barrels are over there today so that they could, they had to do a low test and Actually, I have a low test coming up and I'm like, where are our barrels? And oh, we're at magic. So I, I would say sharing sharing tools or sharing, not advice so much, but sharing, sharing some of the challenges. You know, I think the state of Vermont does a great job with here. We had a fire in our primary pump house uh, a few years ago and it happened 10 days before Christmas. And oh, no. not, not to get off on a tangent, but where I was going with this is I think the Vermont ski scene. And, you know, you mentioned Chris over at Pat's Peak. I had all kinds of guys come out of the woodwork to say, how can we help? What can we offer? And I think that camaraderie, that challenge of trying to be successful and to keep your, your operations going is a big deal. And, you know, that really struck me how people pulled together for us when we had our fire and we didn't get that pump house back up and running until Martin Luther King. And we... It was sort of a white knuckle ride over those next 30 days. It's just part of being in the ski business. It's those headwinds that I talk about. But I would say magic, the relationship is strong. It's strong with Stratton. I'm a big fan or a big believer in in the three mountains, and I hope they do well. So it sounds like you're part of a great community. And and Bromley, actually, as you mentioned, is part of the Fairbank Group, which is a, a small coalition of ski resorts. And the Fairbank Group, of course, owns Cranmore Resort over in New Hampshire and Jiminy Peak in Massachusetts. Bromley joined that group in 2011, as you said. Why did Joe O'Donnell decide to bring in the Fairbank Group to operate the resort? Well, I think the relationship between Brian and Tyler and Joe, that goes back many years. It goes, uh, I'm not sure exactly when that struck up, but it's a longstanding and solid relationship and Joe's been involved in the ski business for a very long time. And Brian and Tyler were asked by Joe to step in, in and around that time. We had spent 
a couple of years under somebody that was hired that was, it was challenging for him and it led to a change. And Joe, with his relationship with Brian and Tyler, asked them to step in. And it was at that point that I was interviewed by Tyler to see what my interests were and what my thoughts were as we were to move forward. And so that's worked out very well. It's worked out well for, I think, everybody. It certainly has worked out well for um, Bromley. To be exposed to the Fairbank Group and what they have to offer, uh, one of the things it raised is our level of sophistication. We got into surveying. We got in guest research work. We got into MPS. We got into uh, the ability to pick the brain of the team at Cranmore. We have this cross-resort relationship uh, between Jiminy, Cranmore, and Bromley. We meet for a few days every every June. We discuss our business plans. We talk about what's working and what isn't working. So Bromley has benefited from this relationship in, a, in many ways. I think it positions us well as we look forward. It, it's a good thing. Right now, Cranmore is undergoing a significant renovation. I think Ben Wilcox does a great job over there and his team. And Jiminy Peak, as you're well aware, is a very established operation with night skiing and, and they're very successful. So we're here, we're solid, we're resilient. I think we have to decide what we want to do and what, what does the ownership want to do. It's a challenging neighborhood, but it's good to have these kind of challenges and, and be faced with this with uh, the Fairbank Group Resorts as a bench depth. Okay, quick break, then back to my man, Bill Carnes and Bromley. All right, I wanna talk to you about a service that I use every single day in the wintertime, open snow. I live within a five hour drive of approximately 150 ski areas. And what that means is I have a lot of options. So when I plan my ski days, I want to know what's firing. Is it the Lake Erie Snowbelt, plastering Western New York? Do I need to head up to the Tug Hill Plateau? Are the Catskills hot? Or the resorts along the Green Mountain Spine in Vermont? Or the Whites, or the Presidentials? Or is a Southern Storm plastering Pennsylvania and Virginia? It's more than I can sort through myself, frankly, and that's why I use open snow. Outlooks from multiple weather forecasting models, hourly forecasts, mountain cams, and resort-by-resort snow forecasts. Yes, they are now a partner, but I have used OpenSnow for years, and now you can too. Test drive OpenSnow's best features with a free 60-day trial, including 10-day snow forecasts for your favorite ski resorts, high-resolution weather maps, expert analysis, and much more by visiting opensnow.com backslash stormskiing. That's opensnow.com backslash stormskiing. All right, so let's talk about the mountain here, Bill, and, and how you're facing some of these challenges. So I, I'm not sure if Romley's gotten enough credit for this. Last year, you completely overhauled the Sun Mountain Express, which, as you said, you installed in 1997. This was a, a really significant upgrade and and really improved the performance and function of this lift. Talk about your upgrades to the Sun Mountain Express and how they improved and prolonged the lifespan of that chairlift. Yeah, it, in 1997, the safety system was built of components that were becoming, quite frankly, 
obsolete. It was no longer being supported. One of our challenges is I did not have power to the summit. So part of our permit application as we renovated that was to put 12240 to the summit so that we could operate the Doppel Connect system, which is what the safety system is called. It required power at the top. So that was a big undertaking. And it was why the price tag was what it was, is it had to include the addition of electricity. And it just protected the investment, the original investment, that detachable is you can get the full vertical of Bromley in a 10 minute ride, or actually a five minute ride when it's cranked up to a thousand feet a minute. And you have a wide variety of trails. Bromley is a peak. It all comes off of the summit. It can go any which way. So the investment in the detachable is the heart of the lift system and what the customer it's it's often all about that lift. If if the lift is in wind delay, but I can still get you to the summit on the fixed grip quad, they stay home. It's all about that lift. And we sit here right on the road. I know people will come down the highway, see the lift isn't running and turn around and go back. And we are prone to wind here. Wind is a challenge. Wind and ice in the Northeast is... Uh, and some of us are windier than others, and we're exposed. And so that challenge, the safety system, the investment, it's a key piece of our success. So investing that money in the simple fact that you couldn't really find parts, parts and pieces to keep it going in a safe manner, it was really kind of a straightforward decision. So it's a significant rebuild, but skiers like new, right? New makes headlines. So help the listeners understand the significance of this upgrade and did you consider a new chairlift and why did you ultimately decide to go with a rebuild instead and talk about just how much better that made this lift you know the price of chairlifts of all the things that have gone up in price groomers just the general cost of equipment chairlifts have just exploded the, you know, the price of steel, that lift we spent $2.2 million on in 1997. It's practically a $7 million lift now. So we're here to protect that investment. And the towers, the terminals, the grips, everything is in good shape. We put about a thousand hours a year on that lift and it just warranted an upgrade, did not warrant um, brand new detachable. It just really wasn't part of the discussion. It, it didn't make sense and should give us another 20 years, quite frankly. And with normal maintenance, it should give us a nice return on what we had to put into it. But what it does is it ensures reliability. You don't have little 24 volt glitches or hiccups because part of the rebuild included a complete rewiring of new electrical components, new comm lines, new switches. It was entirely rewired. So it was just a general upgrade of everything electrical. And it's usually those little 24 volt problems that have a lift mechanic pulling out his hair. I want the skier to ride the lift in full confidence that it's well-maintained and it's got the latest safety system on it. And that, that was a goal. Is it a little faster too, Bill? No, the lift was designed and built to do a thousand feet per minute. It moves 1800 people per hour. We designed and built it to move 2,400 people per hour, but there's no need to hang the extra chairs, but it was always designed around a thousand feet per minute. So Fairbank Group really liked that upgrade so much that they actually upgraded the Ski Mobile Express in Cranmore over this past summer in the same manner. As you look elsewhere on the mountain, Bill, you mentioned you're dealing with some aging infrastructure. You have some chairlifts dating back to the 1960s and 1970s. 
I have some specific questions, but just lay out your wish list for me. If you had the funds, what would you like to upgrade and what would you like to upgrade it with? Now, that's a question that can get me in trouble, Stuart. <laughs> that's what I'm here for. <laughs> I, I think the hall lifts, the hall lifts are a great lift. They're simple. They're straightforward. And, and when I say simple, they're easy to maintain. Uh, parts are still available. The thing about the used lifts is that parts are going to be coming harder and harder to come by. Doppelmeyer has actually taken over the hall parts. Um, I have a T-bar here where it's almost impossible to get parts from. I have a riblet chair from 1965. It's got a brand new safety system. It's got chairs that have been upgraded. We don't have center bolts there. We have the you know, the bail type chairs. It's a simple lift. We probably put only 200 hours a year on it. It services one of our parks. So I think the key to this is your personnel. Who's your lift maintenance team? What is their skill level? Vermont has a apprenticeship program. Uh, my mechanics are all level three, which is the highest you can go. So we have good skill. We have well-maintained lifts. Our challenge looking forward will be part availability. And it's something that not just Bromley is faced with. All things being equal, if I could uh, replace some of the fixed grips with detachables, I probably would. I would actually do that for my beginner lift. I think e-business, we do a great job teaching people how to ski. I think one of our challenges is to make sure we're teaching first-timers how to ride a lift. And we do that well and, and not at the last second when the instructor is at the lift and oh by the way just go out and stand there on that little red line i'm not saying that's what happens but we we have to be as equally good at teaching lift riding as we do teaching skiing you know the human being interacting with a moving lift when you're a beginner is challenging and how well do we do this so the detachable for a beginner if you could afford it i think that's a wonderful idea that east side pot i know that the price of a churl, these detachables are such that it's hard to get a return. How do I justify it? Does a Bromley skier ask me about that lift? Absolutely. I answer it's well-maintained and it's solid. Would they like to see a detachable there? Absolutely. Those are the two lifts probably that if I could change. So East Meadow and, and, and what's the other one? The Blue Ribbon Quad. Uh, and the Blue Ribbon you would like to upgrade to a detachable if you had the funds. If you had the funds, I mean, you, you can make a case for it. One of Bromley's challenges is uh, beginner terrain and the ski teaching terrain. And the East Metal Chair is our prime uh, teaching terrain. The Riblet Chair, if I were to pull it out and reorient it, I could probably expand the green level terrain. We're up against the highway, so I don't have a lot of room in the base area. So we have some real challenges with terrain in that logical progression that you go from a, as a beginner skier to a green skier. And that riblet is is the plaza chairlift, is that right? That's correct. And that you said is mostly your park chair? I, that, yeah. that seems like a less discerning group as far as, <laughs> as, far as demanding lifts. They just want the hits, I think. Right. Right. They love it when, you know, on weekends we run the chair and the park crowd, the plaza contains our primary park and they lap that and it's a good spot for them and it works well. But like I said, for want the reorienting that lift, at a minimum, if I were to do a beginner chair, I would put in a triple just so an instructor could take two kids at a minimum. And if I were to reorient the riblet and pull that out, I would want to replace it with a triple chair for sure. How about the Lord's Prayer T-Bar? I, I actually really like surface lifts for certain scenarios. Do, do you like where that is and what it does? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question because 
when I look at what's the highest and best use of land, is the T-bar actually serving that purpose? You know, it's got a great, that trail is actually, when I think about those early pictures of the Fred Papps area with people in their long skis and their, and their bindings, learning how to snowplow on that, I'm like, wow, that's, that would never pass for today. <laughs> no, there's a part of me that says, do I pull that lift out and do we put more summer attractions up that hill? I mean, that's a possibility. It does serve, um, we have a pretty robust racing program at Bromley through the Bromley Yachting Club, which is an independent group that's been around since the 50s. And, and the little kids practice racing over there and they have events. The Upper East Meadow is where the other racing hill is. And on weekends, the racing crowd, you know, where can we, what terrain can we have? So having the Lord's Prayer and the T-Bar over there does allow me to better serve that you know, important group of young kids that are learning how to ski race. So does mom and dad go up there if they don't own a condo and ski the Lord's Prayer? Probably not. We do make snow on it because it is a racing hill now. It's been a park hill. There's not a lot of options with it unless we were to look at it from a summer viewpoint. So that leaves us with this really interesting lift network that runs parallel to the Sun Mountain Express. So you have this double-double lift, you have the Sun Chairlift, which is one of those halls you were speaking of. And it used to go all the way to the summit and it doesn't anymore. And then right next to that, you have a shorter lift, the Alpine lift. Talk about those lifts and why you made that decision to cut sundown and how that's worked out and, and just the future of those lifts. Cause they are pretty old, but like you said, you, you know, you can still find parts for those halls. So just talk about that double, double lift and the purpose it serves and what your long-term thinking is around them. Yeah, the left side of the double-double, the sun chair, goes three quarters of the way up and it's below where we have our wind issues, the majority of our wind issues. So when we put the detachable in, that lift we took off the top, you know, when you do the math and the capacity and how many people are going up to the summit, we just felt that we didn't need, with the two quad chairs going to the summit, that we needed that double chair to go up there. And all three lifts were exposed to some level of wind. Knowing the mountain the way we do, we know that if we brought it down to the three-quarter point and it accesses a, a key trail for us, we call it a bread and butter trail, the throughway. So if I could get the skier in a wind delay as far up as the throughway, that made business sense. The right-hand side, we hung that in 1984. And it was around then when we took... Some of the changes with the uh, two hall lifts, the double-double, involved the alpine slide. When the sun chair went to the summit, there was a get-off, and the slide actually was further up the hill. When we did some changes, we shortened the slide, and we hung what we call the alpine lift. And that lift runs year-round. I mean, of all the lifts at Bromley, that lift gets the most hours, and it services the alpine slide at a at a really natural takeoff point, the mid-mountain area. As a double-double, they perform a great role for us because they go to two different landing spots on the mountain, both key, one key in the summer, one key in the winter. They're good, reliable lifts. Low capacity, though, compared to that high-speed quad. Long-term, are those just going to stay as redundant lifts? Do you ever consider an upgrade to those? What's your long-term thinking there? I think right now I'm comfortable with those lifts, uh, Stuart. I'm perfectly comfortable. We have updated the drive. We have rewired those lifts. We keep up with any and all bulletins as all ski resorts do. Those lifts are in good shape. I'm very comfortable with them. You know, the maintenance bill is going to go up. Uh, grips wear out. You know, there's all these measurements you take, journal wear. Things wear out over time. And certainly that 
is in progress across ski country. So, you know, again, investing in your lift maintenance crew, having uh, good people working for you, maintaining these. I'm very comfortable where those hall lifts are at. You've asked me to kind of rank where we are with lifts. The halls are my knock on wood or the least of my concerns. What do you think would be next for an upgrade? Are there any pending plans or discussions or, or are you just focused on maintenance for now? Yeah, we're focused on maintenance. I, I have nothing in terms of a lift project. We're looking, you know, what's your tension system, hydraulic tensioning system. You know, you review these kind of things. But we have upgraded all the drives at Bromley. You know, it used to be the snowmaking costs were the biggest part of our operating costs. It's now the lift maintenance has superseded really? uh, snowmaking. Because snowmaking has gotten so efficient that we make more snow in 800 hours than I used to in 1,500 hours, right? Wow. Wow. Snowmaking... Uh, the runtime is down. We've gotten really good at that as an industry. And the lift maintenance is the biggest bill within the operations departments. So let's talk about that snowmaking system for a bit. It sounds like that's really been one of your main passion projects since starting their bill back in the 1980s. Talk about how good that system is today, how widespread it is, and, and what your goals are for it in the future as you look to keep evolving this thing. It is really state-of-the-art for us. I mean, pound for pound, we do, when we push the pumps, it's not the biggest system. I'm in a neighborhood where people can pump 10,000 gallons a minute. We can pump just shy of 3,000 gallons a minute. I have nearly 450, 400 tower guns out there, 500 hydrants, 20 miles of pipe. We have 25 million gallons of water in various ponds. And like I said before, the system was designed around operating pressure. So at its lowest point on the mountain going over the summit, I have 350 pounds of water pressure. Water pressure translates into speed. So I can recover quickly from a rain event or, you know, the freeze thaw cycles. And we have HKD, we have a variety of guns and fan guns, you know, the tools in the toolbox, so to speak. And one of the things that we have done with the whole system, we flanged all the ends of the pipes because the pipes are rusting. I, I, I think what's going to be the challenge in snowmaking is pipe replace. A lot of pipe went in a lot of ski resorts in the 90s. And I, I think we spent a fair amount of time this year taking out split or pipe that failed us last summer. So I think that's where it's going to go as far as what's up next for snowmaking. But pound for pound, the system runs great and it runs really great for what we ask it to do. And what we ask it to do is to cover 70% of this mountain, given the normal cold weather windows that lead up to Christmas week. I'm typically over on the east side during that week, getting the last of the trails, the Havocs and the Stargazers done. And that system year in and year out has provided for that. And again, it's all built around pressure and being quick. And water can be an issue for us. So, you know, we're very much on it on how much snow goes down on a trail how wide that trail gets covered so that we don't run out of water. You know, it's something we talk about quite a bit with the guys. And what we sell is snow. That's what we sell. The skiing surface is everything to us. And we may not have the hot tubs and the clock towers. What we sell is snow. And the snow has to be good. And it is good. And um, the guys are good at it between making it and grooming it. Uh, like I said, the same effort is put into that snow quality on a given Tuesday in January as it is on a holiday Saturday. And that's what that's what we um, make our claim on. That's what we stake it on. So I'm really interested, Bill, in how your team manages this unique Southern exposure that I mentioned in the introduction. It's, you know, it makes it a joy to ski 
it's, you know, one of the warmer places to ski in Vermont. I would imagine this also causes you quite a bit of headaches with the, you know, snow likes or sun likes to eat snow. So how do you deal with this Southern exposure from a snow retention and management point of view? Well, when it melts, it certainly melts. Um, (laughs) What we do when we're into the snowmaking season is we know we, we know the spots, the high traffic spots. The Upper Twister has a section called the Rock Garden, and the Rock Garden gets a great deal of snow and attention because we know uh, the sun will certainly, as it rises towards spring, a lot of wear and tear on that trail because it's combined with skier use. And in, in knowing our mountain, in knowing where we melt out first, and that can change with fluctuation in snow depth, but I think we have pretty good understanding of what we need to be when we hang up the guns, where we need to be. And there's nothing else you can really do about it though. When Bromley is in January and I look around and I see the other mountains are in shadows at one o'clock and we're in full sunlight, you ski Bromley. In spring, mid-March, and we are getting soft and it's sticky. I can understand that you are at one of the north-facing mountains. I understand. Predominantly, our business goes through mid-March. And then when the spring sports start up, the families, you know, baseball and so forth start up. Our club ends, our ski racing ends. And the last three weeks are really to get to that first weekend in April for us is for the season pass holder and just to have spring skiing such as it is. And of course, the savvy Bromley skier will ski from... 8.30 in the morning to 10.30 or 11. And when it gets too soft, they're out the door. <laughs> so so you're lucky that Bromley also is in a nice little snow pocket. And there's been a couple of blizzards in the last few years where Bromley led the entire Northeast with two plus foot totals out of these storms. As a result, you have a nice little glade network. Stratton and Magic also have really great glades. It seems like there's room to build that network out a little bit more on your mountain just from a a survey of your trail map. Are there other areas on the mountain on Bromley that you could glade out? Um, there are probably a couple. You know, what's interesting to me is the kids have their favorite spots on the hill. This is this is too funny, and they've named them. And the names are now part of like you won't find Winter Wonderland on your trail on the trail map that you're looking okay. at, Stuart. Um, <laughs> so those kind of things happen. I, I think. As far as the public skiing on tree skiing, I, I think we're pretty good with that. There may be a couple island pods that we could thin out, and we've talked about it, but nothing nothing imminent. I, I don't have any new, I know new terrain is um, the most exciting thing. You know, just jumping back to Fred Papps for a minute, there used to be in the 1950s, a trail called Bromley Run, and it went off the trail map. And it's like, well, where did it go? And... Um, <laughs> I think what Fred did was the Bromley Run is where the runaround is now, but it went straight down over the shoulder of the mountain and ended up on an area called Corridor 7, which today is a snowmobile trail. And I just found it fascinating that Fred had a ski trail that did not take you back to the lift system. You had to hike out to the highway. Okay. And my understanding was he was going to put in a Peru run off the top of Bromley that ended up in the village of Peru. So, you know, think of that mindset where, well, here's a trail. And if you take it, you got to walk because there's no lift to get back. So some of that side country skiing could be developed. We're on Green Mountain National Forest Land. I'm also on Hapgood State Forest Land. 
I have to work with the Forest Service for some real nice side country skiing. And I do have it in our uh, master plan with, with the Green Mountain Forest. You have to have your plans and your documents. And I can see in the future where Bromley could have some really nice and additional tree skiing. And where would that be in relation to the current trail map? If, if so, I'm looking at the current trail map right now. Where would that side country terrain be, Bill? It would be what, let's call it the side of the mountain, the northeast side facing the town of Peru. So if you're skiing Havoc, it would be to the left. Or if you're skiing the pushover, it'd be to the left. Now that would have to be developed. It would be in the future. It would have to be coordinated because it would take you to the best farm, which is to the east of Bromley. And Bromley owns the best farm. And we would have to coordinate some kind of ability to get obviously the skier back, whether that's a shuttle service or we have also talked to the Forest Service about guided escorts into the Green Mountain National Forest and have them come out in East Dorset, which is off the backside. Those are a couple of things that would expand our offerings, things that we have talked to Green Mountain about, but nothing nothing is quite imminent on that. That's a really neat concept, Bill. Do, do you think that the trail footprint, the lift served trail footprint of Bromley as it stands today is maxed out. Do you think you've you've fulfilled the potential of the mountain? There was a an old expansion proposal off the north side uh, decades and decades ago. Are, are, are there any lift-served expansions still possible or is the mountain maxed out? You know, it, depending on what happens with the best farm, there was a possibility of a lift coming out of that area that would land up near the bottom of the Blue Ribbon Quad, and that would be green terrain. There was a plan that I was a big fan of, and one of the reasons that I've been at Bromley was that I had high hopes that this would come to fruition, and I wanted to be here when that happened. But this particular bowl that I was just talking to you about as far as waiting it, that expansion would have a northeastern face, and it would be about trails that were about 3,300, 3,500 feet long with a 1,000 foot of vertical. So again, nothing terribly steep, but certainly uh, would have added to Bromley's ski experience. And you know, what happens is the permitting process, you know, the challenges, you know, there's intermittent streams up there. So the setbacks and wetlands and so it, it, it's really tough to expand. So to answer your question, we are probably built out as far as I can see, short of if something comes out of the best farm as an access lift or a beginner lift. So that, that potential pod that you just referenced, how far along did you get on that and what ended up ultimately closing that project down? Well, we have spent a great deal of money since the 90s and through the years. We've done bear studies. We've done uh, vegetation studies, wetland studies, beach, where are the beech trees for the bears? And, and you, you know, we've done a wide variety. And then, of course, you can't have a project without water and wastewater being, um, where's the water coming from and where's the wastewater going? So the long and the short of all of this through all of these years is we have downsized what was a pretty sizable project. And right now that entire Best Farm project is on hold. It's fair to say we are trying to decipher what is the highest and best use of the 240 acres that we own over there. We know we can have some level of a project because we do have the water and the wastewater area for it. You know, does the project make sense as developing condos or is it is that piece of land better off just doing something completely different with it? And, I, and that's kind of where we're at. With my ski hat on and being a purist, 
Would I have loved to have seen that whole complex and that bowl developed? Yes, I think it would have been wonderful. I think in some respects, the very best skiing at Bromley is not cut in some respects, but it's not so easy and it's complicated and, and a great deal of money has been spent trying to come up with what's the best path forward. And right now that's what we're up to. We're what's the highest and best use of that land is something that we're, you know, we're talking about, of course. So looking down the mountain, Bill, you have a nice little village, uh, a nice little complex of condos. I think that's really the heartbeat of this community that you're talking about is a lot of folks who are up there every single weekend for the winter. Is there potential to expand down there, either the the condo portion of that or the actual little pedestrian part where skiers congregate at the base of all the lifts? The village is built out. Bromley Village, uh, such as it is, has been built out. I can't, I think the last new unit has been 10 years ago now. What's interesting about the village historically is it's the first ski village at a ski resort. As far as I can tell, it was started in 1968. So it's got a great history and the families up there have, have passed their units down from generation to generation until recently. And recently we are having an influx of new family families buying into Bromley Village. Some of the older families have moved on or no longer ski and it's, it's a great community. They have a great facility up there between the Bromley Yachting Club and, the, and Bromley Village. They're the heartbeat of our season pass holders and I would say, Stuart, they're built out. There's no real developable land up there, additional land. So we've been looking, as we mentioned earlier, at the best farm and, and say Bromley Village East and deciding what that is, is where we're at. All right, Bill, let's wrap up today with a discussion on passes. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, but the season pass market in Vermont has evolved extremely rapidly over the last five years, starting with Vail buying Stowe and bringing their Epic Pass to the Northeast. They've, of course, since purchased Okemo and Mount Snow. So you have these mountains where a season pass used to go for $1,500 to $2,000, and the season pass is now less than $1,000 and, and in some cases significantly less. I've been really surprised to see Bromley maintain its pricing power in this market. The season pass starts at nine fifty nine. Uh, in, in the in the early bird sale today, the price is one thousand one hundred and twenty nine, and you're sitting right ne- there next to Stratton, and skiers can get an Icon Pass for you know at early bird price less than eight hundred bucks, and and that allows them to ski all over the country and at Sugarbush and go out west and everything else. Meanwhile, Bromley's Pass is uh, mostly good at Bromley with a day at Cranmore and Jiminy Peak. So what we saw with Sugarbush is as soon as Stowe came into town, they dropped their season pass price and so did Killington and Mad River and a bunch of other places. Bromley has been able to maintain those higher prices. How have you been able to do this? And and how has that strategy worked for you as competition has really changed very quickly all around you? I, I think a couple of things here. We, we're having a terrific the last three years, including this year, uh, season pass sales have been extremely strong. This year, we are selling more passes than I sold last year. So the Bromley loyalist, the Bromley skier buys the pass. They want to be here. It's an important part of our revenue, but the season pass is only 20% of our revenue. 80% of our revenue is lift tickets. So as opposed to selling more season passes, And all that goes with selling a a lot of season passes is we looked at our 
day tickets. It's the driver of our revenue. We looked at our pricing board and it was complicated. We wanted to simplify. We wanted to make skiing easy. We want to make skiing fun. We wanted to simplify the whole process. So COVID allowed us to try something that we have talked about a great deal through the years. And uh, Michael Van Eyck, who at the time was, he's the assistant GM here. And I, when COVID hit, was like, if we're ever going to do what I'm about to tell you, this is the time to do it. And what that is, is we just simply said, we're going to have two prices. We don't care if you're eight years old or 80 years old. All day would be $89 and half day $79. We went after the yield. So if 80% of our money is coming from lift tickets and I can move the yield from somewhere in the 50s to, you know, 80, that was our strategy. It's different than what Epic and Icon and and some of the other conglomerates have. There's two ways to grow, I think, the ski business. And we are on a path that's a little bit different and it's been successful. You know, I would not want to think as a barrier to skiing that you had to buy a pass. So an affordable day ticket, what's affordable? You know, we we talk about this quite a bit. So this all led to the strategy that I'm explaining and people try us, they can come back, they can ski around. I'm not asking them to buy a pass. And maybe they would not have tried me if I was just, you know, Bromley's unique. And we are surrounded by, you know, some guys that run their mountains very well, and we're very well aware of their pass price. And we just chose to be different and and to stand out in a different way. It leads to a quality ski experience. I don't have, I mean, you always have room for more, but with our detachable, uh, our emphasis on the snow and our affordable day ticket, I, I really think we compete in a different way and we stand out in a different way. And, and that's our plan again for this coming winter. One product that we've seen, Bill, that's come online in recent years that really has been good at encouraging skiers to try new places is the Indy Pass. And I discussed this with Chris Blomback. And in his first year on the Indy Pass, he found, his research found that 90% of skiers who hit Pat's Peak on an Indy Pass were skiing there for the first time and may not have tried it otherwise. Is this a product that you've considered? It does provide a pretty good per visit yield. Have you looked at the Indy Pass? Well, the, the Indy Pass is priced in our season pass, Bromley season pass is priced and it, it, there's just not a connect there. We have, we're aware of it. We understand how it works. But if you were to buy an Indy Pass, say you bought it at Magic and you could ski Bromley, but our season pass is, as you said, $979. And I don't know what Magic's pass is, but it's if the Indy Pass price is quite a bit cheaper, it just doesn't make sense for us to be on the Indy Pass at this point in time. So I'm not ruling. I, I would say the Fairbank Group would, I, I think we always try and be nimble and, and be able to bob and weave and do what's best. But at this point in time, with our pricing approach, as we just explained, and, and our pricing structure, I, I, I don't think the Indy Pass is something that would work for us. I do want to point out just for the listeners that Bromley also does have some discount season pass products. The midweek pass is just four twenty nine. That was actually three twenty nine if you bought it in the spring. A holiday blackout pass is six seventy nine and just five seventy nine if you bought it in the spring. Um, I want to run back a question that I asked Brian Fairbank a couple of years ago here, Bill, and, and that's why you know we've talked a lot about the Fairbank Group and the synergies between Cranmore, Jiminy Peak, and Bromley. Uh, they don't have a joint pass. You did recently start offering reciprocal days, just one. 
on each of the passes. So you get a day at, at each of the other resorts. Has your thinking evolved? So that conversation with Brian was two years ago. So I just want to check in on this. Have you further discussed among the Fairbank Group resorts having some kind of a joint pass? And if so, why have you decided that that still doesn't make sense and isn't the best way forward for your three resorts? I, I think the Jiminy skier, they're loyal to Jiminy. The Bromley skier is loyal to Bromley, and they have the opportunity to go down and try it. Jiminy offers night skiing, which I think they probably see some Bromley skiers come down and try their night skiing. Cranmore is, I don't know, four or five hours. There's no easy way to get to Cranmore, and they're in a different market. I think Bromley and Jiminy, uh, the two skiing groups know each other, have probably tried it through the years. I can tell you, Stuart, I have nobody asked me for a Bromley, a Bromley Jiminy season pass. That just doesn't pop up. And I, I, I think it speaks to the loyal skier. You know, you find a mountain, you really like it. The indie crowd is, is an interesting crowd. I, I think, you know, that works very well. And it's just not part of our line of thinking at this, at this very point in, in time. Well, Bill, it's tremendous insight. I, I really thank you so much for sharing that with us today and, and all of your decades at Bromley. Whether you can believe it or not, it's, uh, it's been a tremendous run. And, and I so appreciate, and I'm sure the listeners will so appreciate you sharing it with us. Um, I'm hoping to, to get up there and meet you in person this year. It's not a bad drive for me. So I, I wish you the best of luck and lots of early snow and a, and a great season. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Stuart. It's been a pleasure. That's Bill Carnes, President and General Manager of Bromley, Vermont. Bill, awesome job. I appreciate you and I appreciate Bromley's take on how to do skiing in 2022. Thank you very much for that, Bill. And thank you all for listening. I have another Northeast pod for you up next. I have not done the back-to-back New England pods in a while. It's time. Popping next door to New Hampshire for a chat with Loon Mountain General Manager Brian Norton. That one is already in the can and it is good. Brian is the real thing. And Loon Skiers, you are going to love hearing what he has to say. Then, big lineup ahead featuring conversations from the leaders of Sundance, Boyne Resorts, Vail Mountain, Open Snow, and many more. And you may be interested to hear that I booked another trio of spring pods last week. First up, in March, the leader of Heavenly and the Tahoe region, Fourvale Resorts. Skipping ahead a little, I will have the general manager of Stevens Pass. And then, a little place uh, called Whistler Black Home. Yes, the Storm Skiing Podcast will finally enter Canada in 2023, and we are going to do it in the biggest possible way. You will hear more on that soon. Okay, reminder to pop over to stormskiing.com to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. The podcast is part of the newsletter, and new pods appear there several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Stormski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.